Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Luhuko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... Authorities in Malawi still battling to deal with the flood situation and UNICEF supports an anti-malaria campaign targeting 2.4 million people in the country. In sports news, South Africa's Bafana Bafana ready for Algeria tonight. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Campaigning ends today for Zambia's presidential election tomorrow. The fiercely contested battle sees 11 candidates vying to become the country's sixth president. The post of head of state was left vacant by the death of President Michael Sutter last October. Zambia's Electoral Commission says 5 million voters are registered. Shingai Nyoka is in the Zambian capital, Lusaka. Final push games are underway around Zambia in preparation for Tuesday's by-elections, and the rain hasn't dampened the mood of party supporters in the capital, Lusaka. The ruling patriotic front, Edgar Lungu, is campaigning on the Copper Belt, 500 kilometers from the capital. But in Lusaka, his supporters, clad in traditional green party colors, are running through the streets trying to drum up support. The opposition's Hakainde Hichilema is scheduled to hold his final rally in Lusaka today. Suspected Boko Haram militants have kidnapped around 80 people in a cross-border attack on villages in northern Cameroon. The group, which has killed thousands and kidnapped hundreds in its bid to carve out an Islamic state in northern Nigeria, has also targeted Cameroon and Niger over the past year as it seeks to expand its zone of operations. Yesterday's kidnappings came as neighboring Chad deployed troops to support Cameroon's forces in the area. Government officials in Njemena say the deployment to Cameroon includes around 2,000 soldiers, armored vehicles and attack helicopters. Ghana's President John Mahama, who currently heads West African bloc ECOWAS, have said regional leaders will seek approval from the African Union in the coming week to create a new force to fight Boko Haram. Work to improve the lives of Libyans affected by the ongoing conflict in the North African country is expected to start soon. Libya has been plagued by factional fighting since Muammar Gaddafi was overthrown in a popular uprising nearly four years ago. Following the conclusion of the first round of peace talks in Geneva, representatives of Libyan warring parties agreed on an agenda going forward to find a political solution to the crisis in the country. The parties have also made unilateral announcements of a ceasefire in order to resolve the conflict peacefully through dialogue. 
a move welcomed by Ansmo. Bernardino Leon, the head of the UN support mission in Libya, is mediating in the political dialogue process. The substantial work will start uh, next week. Uh, we have equally agreed on uh, the confidence-building measures, on a list of measures that have to improve the life of the Libyans. The civilians are the ones suffering more of this war, of this uh, fighting, and uh, so these measures will try to improve their situation and to bring relief whenever possible as soon as we can. Mali's health minister says the West African country is Ebola-free after recording no new cases for 42 days. The health minister made the announcement in a statement last night. Mali recorded its first Ebola case in October last year. The disease infected eight people, killing six of them, according to the World Health Organization. Ebola has killed more than 8,400 people in West Africa, with the overwhelming majority of those deaths occurring in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. And finally, the Human Rights Commission in South Africa has welcomed a decision by government to ratify the United Nations International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. The Commission says the decision ensures that South Africa is finally able to honour its international obligations and consolidate its commitment to alleviate poverty and ensure social justice for all. Former President Nelson Mandela signed the RCE SCRI in 1994 on his first visit to the UN in New York. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And ballot papers have been delivered and observers, observer missions have begun dispatching teams to polling centers as Zambia gears for Tuesday's presidential by-election. The Electoral Commission of Zambia says it's set to administer the polls. Zambians are divided over whether to vote for change or continuity. Shinganyoka reports. Zambia will choose its sixth president on Tuesday. The by-election will fill the vacancy created by the death of President Michael Sattel. And while the winner will only serve 18 months in office before the general elections, it's a by-election which is being fiercely contested. Eleven candidates are competing, but many see this as a two-horse race. It pits former businessman Hikayende Hishilema of the United Party for National Development against the ruling Patriotic Front's Edgar Lungu. Lungu's stronghold over the capital, Lusaka, is obvious. He needs to go to, to finish every, the job which Sata has lived. As of now, I can drive all the way from here, from this north end, the south end of Lusaka. There are no potholes. Oh, they use have bad roads. I can drive from any compound, from any city, to get into any compound. There are tar roads all over the roads. And otherwise, everything has changed. A lot of things have changed. And we still wish things could still continue in the same way. Hishilema, or HH as he is known, held his last rally on Sunday and heavy rains didn't dampen his supporters' spirits. I'll be voting for anyone who's going to bring peace and development in this country. 
And I guess it, it will be HH. Throughout Lusaka, the economic boom is apparent. There are at least half a dozen South African shops and malls. Many attribute the infrastructural development to former President Sata, and those voting for Lungu want continuity, while those supporting HH want more political reforms. Tiseke Kasambala is from the Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa. We've had so many elections um, in the past few years because of the constitution. Under the current constitution, um, when the president is incapacitated or when he dies, um, Zambia has to hold a new election. The common market for East and Southern Africa, Comesa Observer Mission, has dispatched teams throughout the country. Simbimbako heads the delegation. We want an election that follows all the rules that the African continent has, has, has laid down, that Comesa has laid down, that SADC has laid down, the AU has laid down. We have gone to great lengths to uh, map out the way elections should be held. And that's what we're here to, to um, uh, superintend. Founding father Kenneth Kaunda and Frederick Chalupa's parties are not considered contenders in this election. Instead, Zambians are looking to young parties in the hope that they can continue the country's current and prosperous trajectory. I'm Shinga Nyoka in Lusaka. Authorities in Malawi are still battling with floods that have killed 185 people as of this morning and rendered homeless another 200,000. While President Peter Mutarika declared the state of disaster, there seems little that is happening in camps that are accommodating flood victims. Health facilities, food and shelter remain a challenge because the number of victims increases daily. Affected districts are Rumpi, Zomba, Palombe, Blantyre, Chirazulu, Toyolo, Mulanje and Karonga, among others. George Mhango reports from Bangula in a flood-prone area. With persistent heavy rains resulting in floods, Grace Makalani 20 is hopeless. She gave birth in her own house when flooding was at peak. All efforts to go to the clinic when time was due proved futile because roads were impossible even if she had to walk on foot to seek help. With evidence, Grace failed to seek maternal care at a clinic in Makanga just 14 kilometers away because the bridge had been washed away. This is my first child born on the January 10th and I know what it means. I decided to go to the hospital, but floods frustrated me because roads and bridges were washed away. I had no option but to deliver at home with the help of traditional birth attendants. As you can see, I cannot help my kid because all my utensils, beddings, clothes have been washed away in the floods and my house has collapsed. I also need help because the other two children are being taken care of by my neighbor since my husband is in police custody. Like Grace, others too yearn for health support. There is insecurity in adequate sanitary facilities, kitchen utensils, clean water and food. This has since compromised child protection, primary and secondary education, and points to the fact that outbreak of waterborne diseases and disturbed school calendar for the thousand students. To counter the situation, Vice President Saulos Chilima and a humanitarian aid organization, World Vision Malay officials, have launched a massive food distribution program. This initiative happened in the midst of growing dire need for food, shelter and clothing 
to the flood victims in Chikwawa and in Sanje districts. It would be very sad if people don't hit the call and then we are faced with a similar situation in a different district. Uh, we should move. There are vulnerable groups here. There is the very young children under five, and then we also have got mothers. Some of them are expectant. We had a case where one of the mothers actually delivered over the last 48 hours. We need urgent support and more of it, and now. As you can hear in the background, that is the sound of a helicopter, which is ferrying people from the flood-prone areas, and one of them is Bangula here in Nsanje. The launch of the program is also part of the response strategy following a government declaration by President Peter Mutarika in which he called for additional resources to assist the affected. That report by George Mhango. There's good news from Sierra Leone, one of three West African countries battling the deadly Ebola epidemic. The country was lost among its two neighbors, Guinea and Liberia, to be affected by the pandemic, but soon surpass them both in new infections and death tolls. But now it seems the country has made significant progress in controlling the disease as figures have been dropping considerably. Lansana Fofana reports on the latest development from Freetown. More than six districts among the country's 12 have not recorded any new case of Ebola infection or death for more than two weeks. This is in sharp contrast to the huge caseloads that Sierra Leone experienced recently, making it the worst hit among its two West African neighbors, Guinea and Liberia, which are also battling the epidemic. The President of the Republic, Ernest Baikoroma, has himself embarked on a countrywide sensitization tour, admonishing local chiefs and tribal leaders to enforce bylaws that will compel people to observe health guidelines prescribed by medical workers. His message is that with the decline in figures due to the intervention of the international community and the provision of medics and equipment, the Ebola crisis may soon be over. This is part of what he told the nation. As a nation, and with support from our international partners, we have increased our capacity to defeat the virus. Most districts, including Kailang, Kenema, and Bonth, are now registering zero infections over several days and weeks. And a surge in our lab, treatment, sensitization, and surveillance activities in other districts are ensuring faster test results, more people being taken to treatment centers, and more safe burials. There is mounting pressure on the president and his government to do more and end the Ebola pandemic in the earliest possible time. Religious leaders and civil society activists have also joined the fray, engaging communities throughout the country in sensitization exercises. The National Ebola Response Committee, NAC, has also intensified its work, getting more beds to treatment centers and personal protective equipment to health workers who are on the front line of the battle. Many believe this is paying off. CDI Tunis is NAC's Director of Communications and Policy Affairs. He told Channel Africa that there is hope in sight as the government is on top of the situation. What we have seen uh, recently is the trend of Ebola. The geographical spread is beginning to narrow, which for us we believe is a progress. So many districts are now beginning to report zero cases, one or two in some cases. And then if you look at the east, Kailan zero, Kenema zero, Kono zero, 
Pujol zero. Is the government on top of the situation? I mean, when do we expect the epidemic to end? Our target by December 1st was 70%. We have way surpassed that. We want to end it as soon as possible. This optimism is shared by all Sierra Leoneans who have seen their country grounded for eight months. Parents want to see their children go back to school. Tourism, mining, agriculture, among other income-generating sectors have all been paralyzed. Close to 7,000 have been infected by the virus since the epidemic broke out in May and more than 2,000 killed. Many believe the lead taken by the president is well in place and may augment the fight against the killer disease as figures now seem to be dropping. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Lansana Fofana in Freetown. While dealing with Ebola in Sierra Leone, the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, has supported an anti-malaria campaign targeting 2.4 million people in the country. Malaria is the country's deadliest disease for children. UNICEF says the aim is to ensure that malaria cases do not get mixed up with Ebola and to reduce the number of malaria deaths. Elaborating more on the campaign is UNICEF spokesperson Natalie Darris. So we started the campaign already in December. We started with the first round of 2.4 million people that received anti-malaria. So we are targeting the whole population of the hotspots, what we call in the hotspot Ebola areas, really the districts where Ebola affects the whole population the most. So the first round was started in the whole Freetown area, which is the capital of Sierra Leone, and then six other districts where we also found the most cases of Ebola. So we've been working with uh, the National Malaria Control Program, the Ministry of Health and other partners, MSF, the Global Fund, to cover the campaign. We started with a planning, of course, with the different districts on the distribution. We did a lot of social mobilization. So we had uh, social mobilizer and the careers in, in the streets to inform the population about the advantage of the campaign. And then the campaign itself started for four days. So this was the first one in December, and then we are doing now the second round. So it started today for four days for the distribution. It's targeting the same population, so again, Freetown and uh, six other districts, which is something like one-third of the total population of Sierra Leone. Now, what prompted the need to conduct the anti-malaria campaigns, particularly targeting populations in Ebola hotspots. Malaria is the first killer in Sierra Leone, but because the symptoms of malaria can be mixed with Ebola, we decided to do this campaign mainly for two objectives. The first one is, of course, to reduce the, the cases of malaria, but also to ease the strain on the health system and make sure that we're not mixing Ebola and malaria cases. Then the health system will have less, let's say, work and less risk to meet the people. I understand that this campaign has not been without challenges, one being that people are reluctant to seek treatment in hospitals in fear of contracting Ebola. Elaborate more on that and how are you dealing with such a challenge? Yes, this one was one of the main challenges we, we wanted to address with this malaria campaign. Because of the fear of going to health facilities and then getting their Ebola, people were really, um, we've seen a, a real uh, diminution in their admission in hospitals and, and PHUs and health centers in Sierra Leone. So our first fear was that people might 
died from malaria and other diseases than Ebola at home because of this fear to go to the health facility. So that's why one of our main first objectives with this campaign was really to reduce the cases of malaria and then to reduce the risk of dying from malaria at home because of this fear to go to the health facilities. In the meantime, in between the two malaria campaigns, there is another campaign that is going on in Freetown, which is called the Western Area Search, where we have social mobilizers that are going house to house to provide more information to the population about where we are now with the Ebola outbreak and what is the response of the government, trying to give more confidence to people to come back to the facility. So these two campaigns have been done together just to give more confidence to the people to come back to the facilities. Natalie, now, one last question. What are the results so far? Would you say that the anti-malaria campaigns have been proving to be a success in reducing malaria-related deaths? Yeah, we are really thinking that this might have reduced. I mean, we're quite sure that this might have reduced the impact of malaria. For now, the only result that we have is about the coverage of the campaign. So we know how many people we covered, and, but we don't have a yet result on the impact on the malaria cases. But we are now going to do a, an impact survey, so we might have results in the next few weeks about really the impact on the number of cases of malaria in the country. That was Natalie Darris, spokesperson for the United Nations Children's Fund, on the line from Freetown in Sierra Leone, speaking to Jane Matibuda. The alleged murderer of the 35-year-old Leanne Palmarosa, who was found dead on the 28th of December in Mauritius, should learn his fate on Wednesday. This comes as South African-based businessman Peter Wayne Roberts has thus far only been provisionally charged with the crime. Jacques Stienkamp reports. Initially, Palmarosa's death was ruled as an accident by the first Mauritian coroner, but the single mother's brother, Sean Palmarosa, didn't believe Peter Wayne Roberts' version of events. According to Roberts, he went for a shower and came back to find Palmarosa floating dead in the pool. But her brother refutes that allegation and says Palmarosa was definitely afraid of water. Therefore, a second autopsy was carried out that resulted in Roberts being provisionally charged with the murder of his girlfriend. His attorney, Nikki Galactia from Brian Kahn Attorneys, returned to South Africa on Friday. She confirmed that Roberts was only charged days later. Mr. Roberts was provisionally charged with murder on Wednesday, the 7th of January, which was over a week after the tragic death of Ms. Palmarossa. A recent report mentioned that you have launched your own investigation. Who is involved with this and what do you intend to prove? We are conducting our own investigation and have engaged both counsel and experts in Mauritius and South Africa. I cannot uh, comment further on the experts. Why did you not apply for bail initially? It is premature at this stage to apply for bail as the police investigation is incomplete. As I've mentioned previously, Obviously, the legal system in Mauritius is different to South Africa. A person in Mauritius can be provisionally charged pending the outcome of the investigation. So we intend applying for bail once the investigation is complete. What happens next and will he be allowed to leave the island or will he have to wait until the end of a possible trial? Mr. Roberts will appear in court on Wednesday the 21st of January. We won't be applying for bail at that stage as the investigation has as yet not been completed. I cannot comment further on this point. What is his mental condition like at present? I'm not commenting, um, Jacques, on that. Palmarosa's brother, Sean, has been very vocal in the media about his sister's death and that it was no accident. He, however, says that he is now being targeted personally and therefore he doesn't want to speak out anymore.
Yeah, sorry, I can't talk to anybody anymore. Um, yeah, the matter's getting too serious and things. Um, I can't afford to say anything wrong. I'm sorry, bro. Um, yeah, it's just, um, I've also been very consulted um, with an attorney and things. And because people are going to say things about me on the net. And I mean, it was in the past. And so, you know, so they're bringing it back up again. So I can't talk at all. Uh. That was Sean Palmarosa. His sister was cremated during a private family ceremony on Friday afternoon. She is survived by a seven-year-old daughter whose father also drowned a few years ago. I'm Jacques Steenkamp in Johannesburg. Close to 7,000 Muslims gathered to celebrate the mass molid in South Africa's city of Cape Town in honor of the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. The celebration is a partnership between the Molid South Africa and the city of Cape Town. The Muslim community says it's a misconception to associate Islam with terrorism, as Mercedes Percent reports. The Mass Maulid forms part of ongoing celebrations throughout January to honor Prophet Muhammad who was born during this month. Founder, member and trustee of Maulid Essay is Nabewiya Malik. A Maulid Essay is a commemoration of the birth, message and life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. It's an occasion that Muslims commemorate every single year. It's an occasion where we express love and gratitude for the message brought by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The mass Maulid celebrations come at a time when tension is brewing among anti- and pro-Islam protesters in various parts of Europe, Africa and the Middle East. Some of the tension is in response to the publication of a cartoon by a French newspaper, Charlie Hebdo, depicting Prophet Muhammad. The imam of the Vanguard Mosque in Cape Town, Ahmad Tahir Muhammad, who attended the Maulid celebrations, says the Muslim community condemns any killing in the name of Islam. But he also says the perception that Islam is associated with terrorism should be corrected. There's a major misconception out there uh, in the world just because there are few extremists and few terrorists that, uh, show, uh, uh, that use the name of Islam to further their agendas. So, yes, we are disappointed of people's retaliation or people's, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, blasphemous statements and, and, and writings of cartoons and things like that. Yes, we are, because obviously that is our Prophet Muhammad. But our answer to that is that is not the Prophet. That their, their drawing is a cartoon has got nothing to do with us. We do not get provoked by things like those. We are here to preach the message of love and peace. He says Islam is a peaceful religion that respects all other religions. If you look in the history of Muslims, you will find that you will never hear them saying anything bad against anybody's religion. Just look into the history. You will see as much as people have spoken against the Prophet Muhammad and against Islam, you will not hear them saying anything against Jesus because he is our Prophet as well. You will not hear him, uh, we, we as Muslims, saying anything against Moses because he is our Prophet as well. You will not hear us saying anything against even Hinduism or Buddha, Buddhism, right? even though it is contrary to our religion. But because we have been taught that we need to respect each and everybody's, everybody's religion. Mercedes Bassent at the Athlo Stadium in Cape Town.
Having a baby is an exciting time for parents, but what happens after the maternity leave? Many working parents are forced to either send their children to daycare centers or employ a nanny. Last year, videos of nannies torturing children in their care went viral, prompting parents to rethink the safety of their babies in the hands of strangers. But do crashes pose a better option, and can you be certain that your child will be will get that individual attention needed. Genevieve Lanka and Oren Singh investigate. It's a daunting thought, leaving your child in the hands of a stranger while you return to work. But can you really trust the hand that rocks your baby's cradle? Sisanda Makeke from Pretoria had given birth to a healthy baby boy in December 2012. After a prolonged maternity leave, she had no choice but to return to work. She could not find a nanny, making creche the only option. A friend told her about a creche in her area and Makeke soon enrolled her son there. The day finally arrived, her first day back at work and her baby's first day of creche. She fed him, dressed him, and despite her overwhelming emotions, kissed him goodbye and headed for work. He was okay. I kept on checking, I kept on calling. The hours ticked by and it was time to pick up her baby. Call came in, it was Dami, that's the lady's name, telling me that, um, Sandra, please hurry, it's an emergency, please bring a car, the baby's not okay, and then she dropped the phone. After a few seconds, she called again, she was screaming, Sisanda, please come. It's an emergency. The baby is not waking up. I thought the baby was sleeping. Shaken, she immediately rushed to the creche. I met the man there. As I left, the husband was holding the baby. So when I tried to take the baby, this husband didn't want to give me my baby. Why did he not want to give you the baby? I don't know. So I just said, no, this is my baby. Give me my baby. And then he gave me my baby. So we went to that hospital. So hardly a few seconds, the nurses came out telling us that we came with him already dead. He was declared dead. The news broke her. Makeke could not understand what had happened, and despite an inquest, she still does not know what caused her baby's death. A police investigation was launched and still continues today. Makeke learned through the investigating officer that the crash had closed its doors shortly after the incident. She tries to get through one day at a time, but there are many questions in her mind. I really don't know what happened. But crash is just not a, a good option from my experience. If we could, we just stop working for that period and raise your child. Or if it was possible, in our workplaces, I wish there were daycare centers where you go to work with your child. That would be better. I'm even scared to have another one because now I'd be like paranoid if he's sleeping or what. Makeke's story is not unique. Durban residents are divided on whether nannies or daycare would be the safer option. I prefer a crash. At the end of the day, do you really want your child to get attached to somebody else? Private nanny is okay. The kids will be safe at home. The private nanny can be safer because you can train her. I prefer a nanny at a crash. I feel like you don't have any control. But do you really have control, even if your child is with a nanny? Last year, videos of abusive nannies torturing children in their care went viral prompting many parents to install cameras in their home. But president of the Chats with Child Welfare, Logan Naidu, says most parents may not be able to afford such technology. He says parents should rather be more cautious about screening prospective nannies as problems often arise when a domestic worker who is employed for the general upkeep of the home is given the additional task of caring for a baby. I think that approach is totally wrong. Obviously, the domestic worker may have some skills 
in doing the household chores. Now, to expect that person to have the skills to be able to take care of a child, I think uh, you know parents are making a grave, grave error by doing that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think you would frustrate that worker. So would it be safer then to leave the baby in the care of a family member like a grandmother? In many homes, this is a viable option. But Naidu was quick to cite the case of baby Jamie Faith, who was allegedly tortured and killed while in the care of her grandmother and mother. He says parents have to be more critical when weighing the options. People must not just believe that a granny can take care of a young child. Because if the faculties of the granny, understanding or sight or hearing is uh, impaired, I think parents need to be careful of just saying, okay, I have a grandmother at home, she loves my, the grandchild and she's going to take care. They may not be the appropriate care. So where does this leave desperate parents? He says in his experience, a crash is often the safer option. Remember that the nanny will be unsupervised. So a parent may not speak harshly to a child. A parent may not spank the child. But the domestic worker in the absence of the parent, in all likelihood, may do that. So for me, I would rather that parents choose an accredited facility. That, that report by Genevieve Lanka and Oren Singh. Good morning. Campaigning ends today for Zambia's presidential election tomorrow. Suspected Boko Haram militants have kidnapped around 80 people in a cross-border attack on villages in northern Cameroon. And Mali's health minister says the West African country is Ebola-free after recording no new cases for 42 days. Those are the stories making headlines. An Indian state banned a film featuring a sex guru after protests by sex. The government's decision to clear the movie for screening also prompted the National Censor Panel's chief to resign. But supporters of The Godman have dubbed it as India's Shali Ebdo, referring to the French satirical publication attacked by gunmen this month. Rana Sen reports. India's Punjab state banned the screening of Messenger of God after six took to the streets saying the film lampooned their religion. The central role is played by Godman Gurmit Ram Rahim Singh, also known as Love Charger Baba. National Censor Board Chief Leela Sampson and 12 other members quit, accusing Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government of reversing their ruling to bury the thriller. Board member Nandini Sardesai said Messenger of God was unfit for public screening. When we saw the we said it is in its entirety, it is not suitable for public viewing. That was the collective decision of all of us, we were eight of us, and that's how it, the film was not found suitable. So as for the procedure, and it is up to the producer to go to Delhi and ask for a tribunal hearing, which normally takes 15 to 30 days. This has happened within 24 hours, a tribunal has been set up and has cleared the film. The movie shows the Hindu guru riding super bikes and fighting off bad guys. Ira Joshi, another member who quit, blamed the government for the rush of resignation 
suggestions from the national panel. I have resigned as others have as well because it is in protest against the way in which the board and the chairperson have been treated. We did not go public earlier. We've had various discussions. The chairperson had taken a very ethical position that she will continue and attempt to make an intervention and help the government deal with various crises. But clearly she has not been given due consideration. Her opinion has not been taken into account. But India's Information Minister Rajavardhan Rathore accused Samson of playing politics over the Godman, who backed Modi's Hindu Nationalist Party during elections last May. The chairperson talks about coercion. We as the government would like to see that SMS or a letter where she or any other member has been coerced and then we would take appropriate action. The government is absolutely hands away from all decisions of the censor board. They are an independent body and they need to take and behave like one. Opposition Congress leader Abhishek Manu Singhvi said only a probe will quell the protests which threaten India's prolific film industry. This is a very serious matter. She's a very respected artist, a person of high stature. If she says this, it reflects a complete failure of the ministry and of the government. The most deepest comprehensive inquiry must be instituted and culprits brought to book. It should not be taken lightly. It already spells a great failure of administration at the ministerial level. Love Charger Baba is accused of inciting rioting between his followers and Sikhs in Punjab state. He also faces charges of rape, murder and more recently the forced castration of 400 disciples in his fortress like ashram. This is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. In order for men to help women to achieve gender equality, men need to help themselves first, according to the head of a male-led campaign to end violence against women. Todd Minnison, executive director of the White Ribbon Campaign, has been speaking at the Barbershop Conference underway at the United Nations. The campaign promotes gender equality, healthy relationships and the new vision of masculinity. Minnison explains that in order to get men involved, he helps them to understand how society shapes the way men view and treat women. Well, that's, that's an exploration that we need to have. And if we're trying to get men involved in gender equality work, understanding what social constructions are there around our own gender is, a, is an important part of that because those are the things that end up causing a lot of harm not only to women and girls but also to ourselves as men and boys so you know why do some men choose violence why are some men resistant to the idea of gender equality what is it in our own gendered identity that that are barriers to those outcomes that we want to realize how can we help women by helping men i think first of all men have to start to help themselves and men have to drop some of the tools that we learn about how to be a quote-unquote real man to understand how we can make a better world for women and girls and for ourselves. For one thing, we need to learn to listen to women's experiences better. For another, we need to be less defensive when people are critiquing or analyzing male power and privilege. It's not always about us, it's about the systems that we're part of. And women can help along that way by having some patience with us when we're genuinely trying to figure it out, by holding us accountable to the ideas that they've built in the feminist struggle over the last 50, 60, 70 years, and by also understanding that there are men who are willing to and interested in changing the discourse around what it means to be a man. Many men don't consciously realize that sexism and gender equality are still really big issues in today's society. How can we get men to see and understand the subtle but powerful ways in which misogyny and gender inequality are perpetuated in today's society? The range of 
what we call sometimes microaggressions and systemic problems around gender inequality are, are vast, right? There's, there's the global issues like violence against women where we know one in three women is going to experience sexual or physical violence in their lifetime. However, still a lot of men are unaware of that. So there's an awareness piece that we can do there. But when it comes to the more kind of subtle, insidious, everyday kinds of sexisms, it's hard for men to understand that through statistics or lectures or things like that. So some of the things that we do is ask them to think about different kinds of questions. One question I'm going to ask today is, for, for the guys to answer, is to say, have you ever had an instance where you smiled at someone and they had interpreted it as a sexual invitation? Or if you didn't smile, someone said, why are you smiling? It's so cold and, and, you know, and uptight. Men simply don't experience that, right? We experience an entitlement to, hey, if someone smiled at me, oh, she must think I'm cute. So there's those ways to point out those microaggressions to men that make it a bit more of an experience they can understand. What can I do as a woman to help men engage in gender equality and end violence against women? Um, what can women do? What can you do? I would say challenge the men in your life to step up. If you know they're good men, challenge them to do things like, you know, uh, challenge sexist jokes, sexist language, um, understand how they can play a role in promoting gender equality in the everyday things that they do, whether as, as family members, as parents, as uh, educators, as business leaders. Help them by starting some of those conversations and letting them know that they need to be a part of it as well. I think there's, uh, there's a lot of encouragement men get when they know they don't have to be perfect and they can figure it out as they go along. So I think that's one important thing that women can do. That was Todd Minnison, Executive Director of the White Ribbon Campaign, speaking to Stephanie Castro. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The year 2014 represents a historic milestone of 20 years of freedom and democracy in our country. An occasion to reflect on what has been achieved over the past 20 years working together. We enjoy freedom of movement and of association, the right to own property, the right not to be detained without trial freedom of expression and freedom of the press, religious freedom and freedom of sexual orientation. Women have equal rights before the law which did not exist before 1994. Workers have 20 years of enjoying rights including trade union, workplace organizing, collective bargaining, equal pay for equal work, health and safety, affirmative action, skills development, minimum wages for workers in vulnerable sectors, the right to strike and the right to peaceful protests. South Africa is a successful story. South Africa is a good story. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We broadcast from Johannesburg, South Africa, and our main aim is to provide news, views, interviews, 
knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and the world. We broadcast in six languages, allowing Africa to tell its own stories, promoting the continuation of our continent's unique place as the birthplace of humankind. Africa, rise and shine. Imetim hivyo saa mbili kamili magharibi majira ya Afrika Mashariki ama saa moja kamili jioni saa za Afrika ya Kati na Kusini. Hii ni idhaa ya Kiswahili ya Chano la Afrika inayokujia katika mitabandi 16 kilohertz 1770 toka Johannesburg Afrika Kusini. Little medicine. Kitaboni kitwitwa Ndife makutu ndi maso wa Afrika. Grande compétition mensuelle sur Canal Afrique. À partir de ce mois de juillet 2007, Écoutez Canal Afrique, la voix de la renaissance africaine et gagnez de nombreux lots. Amigos ouvintes, muito boa noite. São neste momento 21 horas na África do Sul e hora central africana. Diretamente de Joanesburgo, a cidade do ouro, aqui na África do Sul, Canal África a transmitir em língua portuguesa para a região da África Austral, numa emissão especialmente preparada para Angola e Moçambique. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoko. Huge problems have reportedly been detected at Unit 6 of the Midupi power station in South Africa's Limpopo province, which is supposed to come online early this year. Democratic Alliance Member of Parliament Natasha Michael says she has written to Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown for clarity on the matter. Unit 6 is supposed to add about 800 megawatts to the national grid, but Michael says there is reportedly a huge problem with the design of the piping which will prevent the unit from working correctly asker meanwhile says it is hopeful that it will not need to implement load shedding this week 
Spokesperson Kulu Pasiwe says the power system is relatively stable. The power system is expected to be constrained. It does not necessarily imply that there will be load sharing. All we are saying is that uh, it will be constrained, and if we do lose some of our generating units and there's more demand and supply, then uh, there may be that possibility of load sharing. At this stage, though, no load sharing is planned for the next week in terms of implementation. With the unemployment rate projected to be at 28% by Swaziland's Ministry of Labor and Social Security, the 30% mandatory local asset investment by insurance and retirement fund companies is mostly benefiting banks than being pumped in projects that would create employment and further develop the Swazi economy. Simply put, this initiative is not boosting the economy of Swaziland. Financial Services Regulatory Authority Chief Executive Officer Sandile Lamene has observed that most of the assets are liquid, currently held by commercial banks. The CEO said commercial banks were fully aware that if the money is held in cash, it easily gets injected into the South African economy. A Belgian and a Zimbabwean working for international agribusiness company Sokfin Group have been shot during a protest over land rights in Sierra Leone. The Luxembourg-registered company, part of the business empire of the French tycoon Vincent Bollor, is embroiled in a bitter feud with local landowners in the Malin chiefdom where it has its palm oil plantations. Sokfin says the two men were returning from overseeing the extinguishing of a fire at the plantation when they were attacked by people throwing stones at their vehicles was shot at. The International Monetary Fund says Madagascar's economy has shown early signs of recovery in 2014 with growth estimated at 3%, which could rise to 5% in 2015. But political instability, weak institutions and weak governance are hurting prospects. The Indian Ocean Islands economy was battered after a 2009 coup that drove away donors and investors. A peaceful 2013 election has brought back some aid. But the nation is still struggling to impose a stable government and economic reforms. Indicators the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming live to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. Gauteng, the city of gold. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.56 South African Rand, 9.59 Botswana Pula, 6.52 in Zambia, 0.65 British Pound, 0.84 across the Eurozone, Gold 1.274 dollars, Platinum 1.261 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude 4.97 cents a barrel. Economic Update. Thank you, Tabitha. Our sports update up next with Tabi Kuza.
Thanks for joining us and welcome once again. South African Sports Minister Fikile Mbalula has wished Bafana Bafana well as they aim to win their first Africa Cup of Nations away from home. Bafana Bafana are coming into tonight's Africa Nations Cup tournament opening match against Algeria as the lowest ranked team in their group, way behind fellow Group C teams Algeria. Algeria ranked 18th internationally and number one in the continent, with other two teams in the group, Ghana and Senegal, sitting in the continent's top five. Bafana coach Ifrahim Sheikh Mashaba says that they are, as they are prepared to meet Algeria this evening, their good work has not gone unnoticed. It is, yes, it is. It says we've done everything right. I mean, for us to have qualified with one game to go, it can happen even now. We in our first two games, we have qualified already with one game left, and that has been our plan. I think uh, we've got the boys to do that. They can do it. Uh, We've got very much confidence in them. I mean, you have seen the last session that we're doing now. They were showing some willingness, running on and off the ball, though, you know, at this time, everybody's scared of injuries because they want to play tomorrow. In cricket, South Africa's A.P. De Villiers took 31 balls to smash the fastest century in one-day internationals as South Africa crashed the West Indies by 148 runs at the Wanderers in Johannesburg yesterday. The protest posted 439 for two wickets, their highest team total in this format, before restricting the tourists to 291 for seven in their 50 overs to take a 2-0 lead in the five-match series. Natalie Germanos has more. Yesterday at the Wanderers at Pink Day, A.B. de Villiers hit one of the best ODI hundreds you would ever wish to see. He eventually made 149 off just 44 deliveries with 9 fours and 16 sixes, with his 100 coming off a record 31 balls and his first 50 coming off just 16 deliveries. He helped South Africa get to 439 for two in their 50 overs, with Hashimamla making an undefeated 153 off 142 balls with 14 fours. Riley Rousseau hits his first ODI century of his career, making 128 off 115 with 11 fours and two sixes. The target of 440 proved to be way too much for the West Indies, and eventually in their 50 overs, they made a 291 for seven. From South Africa's point of view, Mornay Morkel picked up two for 43 in 10 overs, Werner Verlander took two for 69 in 10, and Dale Stane bowled his 10 overs for just 29 with one wicket to his name. South Africa are now 2-0 up in the series with three matches to play. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Authorities in Malawi still battling to deal with the flood situation and UNICEF supports an anti-malaria campaign targeting 2.4 million people in the country. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, and the, our producer, Lebu Munamukhulu, our technical producer, Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or tweet us at Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Tandi Swamazwai with Nizalwa Ngobani. <laughs>